Even a country where food inflation is skyrocketing, that tells you that they plan for food and jobs, which was supposed to be the catalyst. You produce a lot using that. And then that, because the conversation has been in the past, farmers produce and the produce, they get rotting. If you don't find, if you don't find a, a market for it immediately, a lot of it is perishable and stuff like that, and they, they, they perish. So you build a warehouse and you put them in. And, and we have the situation with the food buffer stock, for example. That will be supervising this across the country. But we haven't been successful in producing a lot yeah. in this country, right? Even with all the money we spend with the, uh, the plan of food and jobs. So why are you building the warehouse? It's in every district, by the way. Is it every district where they have agricultural output enough to make a warehouse uh, a useful investment? Because it will not be useful if there's nothing to keep in that warehouse. It would be empty, right? So must you have a warehouse in every district? Because the sloganeering is, is key. If you say one district, one warehouse, what it means is simple. In simple mathematical terms, one warehouse in 216 districts across the country. Do we need all that at a time of economic crisis? Thankfully, they've, they've told the, uh, the IMF that they will review it, right? I'm expecting to see a radical overhaul, not a review. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, do we need it one? Is, is that a priority right now? Um, because if you build a warehouse, how long, how long is it going to take? How much is it going to cost us? One village, one dump. Jojo went up. We've been playing that documentary um, over, the, over the period and, and found evidence that a lot of the dams that we built and functioned, we spent a lot of money in there, an average of 250,000 CDs per, per dam, and the dams aren't working. So a lot of money we've thrown into a basket and had leaked out. Should you continue with that? Now, you see, or, or do you stop Look, I'm going to make and a repurpose? I'm, I'm going to make a point, and I know that Gideon may disagree with me. But this is the point. When we decided to reduce, and I mean, we've, we've reversed that now, the benchmark you know, reduction, when we decided to do that, at the time when the vice president announced it at the uh, College of uh, Physicians and Surgeons, he made a very important point. He said that, look, we're doing this because over the period we've realized that because of our high import duty, yeah. people are smuggling in goods, and that is affecting even revenue generation. And people have seen other ports as ports of choice compared to our ports. Okay. Now, today, if you're purchasing a vehicle that hitherto you are paying duties about, you know, 5000 6000 you have to pay duties of 26000 25000 the reality is that if you could import three, you would import one or choose not to import at all. So we're talking about food inflation, okay? We've, talking, we've talked about imported inflation. What does that tell you? Why is imported inflation the problem today. Because we're not producing enough locally to feed ourselves. Enough, so we're having to import a lot of food. And why is it? And so, and so why is it that? And so if you cannot pr pr produce enough locally, what you do actually is that in the short term, if you want to get your inflation right, you actually begin to think about areas where you can reduce duty. The staple foods that are consumed most in your country. Think about it. Okay, look, inflation is troubling us. We've increased uh, policy rate. It's hurting businesses. It's hurting businesses. Today, I mean, but for the banks deciding to even undergo uh, loan promotions, you're having loans in excess of 35% in lending rates. That is on the high side. In every business that takes a lend, uh, an interest rate of 35%, you think he would reduce that for you. So how about you telling yourself this? That, okay. And Kenya did it. Kenya, in the heat of COVID-19 and, Rus and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as we've said, are our problem. What Kenya did was to say that, okay, because we consume a lot of rice and we don't produce enough, 
we're removing some duties on, rices, on rice importation mm. so that it would reduce the cost of rice on the market. It reduces the cost. Yes, I mean, you're not going to get the kind of uh, you know, revenue you think you may get because of the duty you've imposed on it. But if your market, and I know the rice producers in Ghana are going to jump and say, why, you want to do, why do you want to do that? The reality is that today, we cannot produce enough. The reality is that today, even those who are producing here, our own rice producers, are charging us more. In some instances, they're charging more than the ones we import and bring into the country. So why don't we say, for instance, for only a year we want to do this? Let's say it's not even rice. Check the other things that are in high demand in the country that you can actually reduce import duties on. Look, it is not everything that you have to say, oh, because we need money, that's there. Because if at the end of the day, didn't you hear the people complaining that the ports had become empty? You heard it, Gideon? Yes. You heard it, Evans, yeah. that the ports had become empty. What do you do to bring some business there? Of course, by, I mean, uh, because of the depreciation of the Ghana city and because our import duties are calculated using, uh, you know, uh, dollars. And so if you're bringing something into the country, they'll look at the, uh, you know, dollar rate of it, I mean, dollar price of it and calculate your import duty for you. They may be, you know, meeting targets because today the city has depreciated. But the question is, how long can we continue? A lot of things must change. Let's have some, let's think about creative ways of doing things. But because if we want to go the same way, and I was having conversations with uh, Professor Noel Tego. I mean, he's a celebrated, uh, you know, a professional globally. Globally, when it comes to the practice of accounting, he's celebrated worldwide. He makes the point that you cannot do this. And it's about time we considered all of these. I'm hoping to see some drastic measures from the finance minister. Um, well, to uh, continue from where he left off, I think um, th- there is a much broader uh, argument or discussion we can have about this. Uh, we are looking at the revenue and expenditure, rights, But then some of the things uh, which will resolve a lot of these issues are major structural uh, issues which are, uh, which are yet to be addressed. Everybody agrees for the fact that uh, we have to be producing more. Um, agri- agriculture, manufacturing, etc., and these are the areas where, when we focus on, uh, it leads to employment, it leads to value chain along the line. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the growth that we've seen over the past couple of years have been coming from the extractive sector. And the extractive sector has not really been employing as many people as much as possible. Because uh, it's highly skilled. It's highly skilled, I mean, a lot of technology. We don't have and, the and it's skills. not going to change. Yeah. As, as the uh, technology develops and increases, uh, a lot of the production, extractive, etc., is going to be run uh, by technology or tech-wise uh, tech people. So we have to look at areas where we think that when we focus on, will increase productivity at the same time lead to employing a lot more of our population than we are doing now. So for us now, or uh, coming to the finance minister, or what is to be read today, uh, monetary theory is in the hands of the central bank. They are handling interest rates, etc. But government on its own can only do its work through uh, expenditure and then tackling revenue. So if revenue, we're able to see that, well, based on the target that they set or they give to the IMF, they are bang on, fine. If they are ahead of targets, even better. If not, then the expenditure or areas have to be really looked at in terms of making sure that they're not going beyond the deficit target they give to the IMF and so on and so forth. So it's not a straightforward answer. But I'll look for more direction uh, uh, or more of how the economy has fed over this past couple of months, which will give us an inkling as what's going to happen the rest. Let's expand this in a very controversial area of still, again, meeting 
our revenue and expenditure targets as dictated by the IMF. We've talked a lot about taxes or no taxes, cutting or no cutting. One of the things they also committed to do is to touch workers and their wages. Just to quote, just for the awareness of doubt, they committed, and it's in the program, wages of public sector workers will be calibrated. And I remember when this word came up, the TUC was, everybody was wondering, when you say calibrated, what exactly are you talking about? I'm expecting, and, and, and this is me also talking as a worker, right? Because when the workers get something, sometimes it has an indication, even the private sector, right? Because if the workers, they, they, they increase or reduce, then you go to an argument and say, but if the, the, uh, you know, the base pay had gone up for them, you know, then there should be a knock-on effect for you as well. Calibrate to ensure a balance between burden sharing, productivity, and capacity to pay. Wesley, you remember this quote? I remember it very well. This is the moment we get absolute clarity on what, that's, what, this, what this means in reality. I mean, you're right. But you see, um, this is our program. And before this program came out, government had already, uh, you know, accepted, you know, labor's demands. Was very, I mean, you see, because we're, we're faced with a shutdown. And we said, you know, and then the whole conversation about inflation and you know, they started by asking for, you know, an increase in their base pay, uh, you know, more than even the rate of inflation. Eventually, we agreed about 30% or so, thereabout, yeah. you know. But then, going forward, it's something government is not going to do. Something government cannot do. C- cannot do what? Government cannot continue increasing, uh, you know, salaries the way labor would expect. Let's be frank here. And so you're right. You want to really hear what the finance minister is going to say. But that's also dependent on the conditions in the country. You see, if the conditions in the country demand increase in wages, you have to increase the wages. Look, the conditions today are such that Mm. you have fuel prices, we're told, going to go up. Okay? Now, if fuel prices are going to go up, you and I, seated here, we buy fuel and drive to work. If you buy fuel and drive to work, and over the period they've not increased your fuel allowance, what do you do? You have to pay for more. What that means when fuel prices would go up, and we'll not believe at this point, we know how the, the cascading effect it has on everything in this country. So then labor would come back again and say, give us money. But there's a way government may play around this. You know, they started by talking about how they're not going to increase, uh, you know, political appointees' salary here and there. Um, there's also a way government may actually, you know, so they remove the cola and then they give, you know, a, a certain increase. So that in itself, you realize that the total impact on the budget may not be as huge as you would expect it to be. Yeah. Now, there are people who are going to be going on retirement, who are going to be retiring. Is government really going to be employing uh, people to fill up or may want to, you know, find others to get in there and say that's the end of it? Well, I mean, ordinarily, when you talk about a, a freeze on employment, you expect that, once somebody retires, you replace that person. But if you have labor engaging in this kind of uh, holding government to increase my salary, increase my salary, if you're the government, I mean, the best thing to do is also to watch. If you realize that, look, labor, uh, there are people who are going on retirement. If I cannot pay, what do I do? I just would nicely, nicely say that, oh, how about we get somebody to assume a responsibility here who will probably do not employ another person to take it. We've also seen that today, government is beginning to export Ghanaian uh, workers to other parts of the world and taking even money for it. 
that in itself saves government the usual stress of financial clearance to employ people, particularly teachers, nurses, doctors. Yeah. Your, your thoughts on this? Because when the government had said to the IMF and has been written in our program that you're going to calibrate workers' wages for ensure balancing productivity, bedding sharing, and capacity to pay, of course, we'll see what the reality is in the media budget. But what, 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 what do you, what's, your, what's your understanding of what this is and how that may reflect in actuals once we see it? Um, so this is also one of the areas where there's been a lot of discussions about yeah. in the past, about increasing productivity of workers. And for me, I see a lot more of the government slowing down on employment or making sure that they don't increase their payroll costs. And then also to make sure that the, a certain level of productivity is brought about for government workers. As to the specifics, I haven't seen it. I'll wait to see it, but it will be interesting to see what they're going to do about this differently from what has been done in the past. Yeah, I mean, and, and that for me, this is going to be one of the most controversial areas. So what, they have committed to do something about it, but how that reflects in reality is interesting. And if you read further, uh, Winston, another thing they said, as far as this is concerned, is that there will be a compression of real public sector wages. Yeah. Just to put it in context, what they committed to do was a primary expenditure will be reduced by 2% of GDP. Remember that target? Yeah. And to achieve this, one of the things they, they've committed to do to achieve this 2% of GDP uh, expenditure reduction is compression of real public sector wages. What does that mean for you? Um, You're going to compress real public sector wages. Um, so if I, uh, we're having a discussion the other day. and The, the thing is, if, if you look at it, inflation itself is a tax uh, on its own. And if you try to compare it, the, the government could say, well, uh, the purchasing power of employees in general has gone down significantly. Looking at inflation from last year up to now, it's been over 40%. Mm. Uh, putting all of this together, the real wages uh, of employees in the sector has already gone down. I wouldn't expect that there should be any further uh, compression. Inflation is... But they've committed. De they have a target, the they have a target to reduce primary expenditure by 2% of GDP, and they've committed to the IMF to, to achieve this target or compress public sector wages. You know, I mean, but, so, but I'll come to you. You don't expect that they can do this? Um, or they should do it? I, I don't expect any active measures to... To compress? It, yes, because looking at how the CD has fared and inflation and everything, I expect there to be some balancing over this overall, so that when we do the comparing itself... The but considering that they've already agreed with the IMF to do this. Yes. It was on the basis of this and others that we got the deal. Yes, so as I'm saying, it will be interesting to see the figures that he will present today and seeing whether the uh, significant shifts in government's own payroll against the revenue, etc., would have led to this uh, Wait, payment. And you see, the thing is that, yes, um, government was looking at ways that it could achieve the target it set for itself. But what could happen is that the all these measures are supposed to end in one basket. Make sure that you're able to become, you know, sound. But if government is willing to do other things, I mean, there'll be challenges here and there. Workers would fight. But government can actually decide to cut elsewhere. And, you know, in, in accounting the times that, you know, we've done environment, we've gone to move expenditure from one place, put it to another place, because there's a problem here or there. But this is the point. If it becomes critical that other sectors suffer 
just to make sure that we achieve that. And revenue cuts elsewhere would help the finance minister to do that. He would find ways and means to do that. But this is the point. You also would realize that going forward, and I'm sure when he comes, he will say, but I, I foresee a situation where going forward, we may have to reduce the numbers, even when people are going on retirement. I foresee the situation where we may not be replacing them, unless it's very critical to replace them. Because if we are replacing them, I mean, we may not be replacing them because of the way labor is behaving. And look, 2024 is an election year, and labor would never, never go to sleep. They say strike it when the iron is hot. It would put a lot of pressure on government to do a lot of things for them. And the government will look at other areas. You wait and see. Um, well, the government may not touch this. And uh, those who have implemented IMF programs will tell you that you know, sometimes when you get it, then you begin to look for other avenues, other avenues to actually you know, uh, meet your targets. I foresee other areas suffering, but not um, you know, areas to do with the vulnerable, which in itself, which in itself, I, still, I started by saying, is one of the avenues that the, 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 the government could use to finance its election campaign. That's one of the avenues government could use to finance its election campaign. Because of the fact that this is also supposed to be a pro-poor uh, you know, program, a lot of uh, you know, the revenues would be hidden under pro-poor policies, like infrastructure for poverty eradication program. I don't know what that means. Okay, so you would have a situation where the finance minister you know, would try, may not employ as much as people, when they're even going on retirement, even the critical sectors, they probably would say, oh, we're able to deal with that. Because if you look at particularly our next to patient ratio, we have very good ones. We meet the world standards. Doctor is a problem. So that one you need to. But we'll tell you that, oh, but over the period, that's always there's been that. You look at areas when it comes to even teachers. You look at areas where they can afford not to employ new ones. And there we go. Yeah, I mean, that for me is one to watch. Because labor will tell you, Anytime this has been mentioned, they say, what about the Article 71 office holders? What have you done about their salaries? And I, I noticed in the program uh, to the IMF, the government actually told the IMF what they've done with that group of workers, that the 30% cut in their salaries. Remember that? They, it was part of the, the, the document that the IMF themselves published as part of that program. Is that a sense that maybe the suggestion is that for that group of people, They've already sacrificed their 30%, and so their salaries and wages have been compressed already. Um, they, again, if you look at the spread, the bulk of the public sector, which wages, which we now know, it's a, the two biggest items always in the budget that's been that and on also what we spend on interest uh, and interest payments. Um, the, the interest payments recently had overtaken the, the wages, obviously because of where we are. That clearly is going to be where the fight is going to be. How much is government itself willing to cut? in terms of the political appointees? And how much then can he, does he derive a, a fair bit of moral justification from there? And then say, because we've done, we've, we've suffered this much, then you also share the bedding. Remember what the wording of that is, is bedding sharing, a balance between bedding sharing and ability to pay. I foresee a situation, possibly the finance minister uh, will want to go there, where they, again, we will stress what they've cut, and then invite workers to take a bit more hit looking into the, into the next year. You, you don't see that as a possibility? Well, that's a possibility. But, you know, workers, you see, the thing is that, um, Evans, let's face it, once you're taking a hit, okay, and, and, this is where, and this is where the problem always is. The fact that today they see government, and so we're talking about, oh, you know, and I met a minister who showed me the last time and said, my fuel uh, coupons for the weakest. Okay, let me just say that the finance minister is in the house now, is taking his seat uh, in the front row, uh, shaking a few hands. If you listen to us 
on Joy 99.7 FM. Welcome. Uh, this is our live coverage of the Media Budget Review, a very important one. It is not business as usual because this is the budget uh, review presentation that we expect will fully integrate the agreements we had with the IMF. So this is important. He's now taking a seat, uh, so we expect this to get underway pretty shortly. Our colleagues uh, in Parliament, George Raffi and Kwekwa Santo, will join us pretty shortly uh, as we head into the uh, presentation itself. But there is so much to look forward to because we've been looking at the program that we agreed with the IMF and looking forward to seeing its uh, manifestation in real terms. Um, in, in the media budget review that uh, the finance minister is just about to present. Um, Gideon, we've been talking a lot about this is going to be a, a balancing act, as we've been stressing, between uh, revenues and, and expenditure. We've talked about the most controversial bit of this, which is either you're doing taxes, either you're reviewing them to become more efficient, or you're cutting your own expenditure. And then we talk about what do you have to do with wages, because wages, as we've just talked about before I introduced the fact that the finance minister is in, is one of two biggest items in the budget all the time. So if you touch it a bit, you're sort of saving a lot. But we know that's, that's very dangerous. But we'll see how they do that because they've committed to do it. And then he also says, as part of the meeting the primary expenditure reduction of 2% of GDP, reduction of transfers to statutory funds is something that they've committed to do also. And for many people who know the problems we've already had with some of the key statutory funds, like NHIS fund, for example, where the monies don't go on time, and any capitation grant, another one, right, um, specified in law, they'll look at that and say, that is actually a very dangerous place to touch. You started by saying there are some places you can't touch because it's affecting the poor and the vulnerable. Reduction of transfers to statutory funds, I believe, is one of them. You agree? Yeah, I I totally agree. I think... uh for governments, what they can do is to change the law. As long as the law has not changed, uh, this is nothing that they, what they are actually do is they are deferring the payments uh, as long as the law remains effective. So this is an area that uh, I think the finance minister himself have uh, touched on it a couple of times that he thinks uh, the statutory payments is sort of restrictive. It ties the hands of government as to what they can do and what they cannot do. So to attain more flexibility, I think the, what they can actually push for is to have uh, changes in the laws and as to what they do. Because what they've actually done is they've kicked the can along the road and then eventually they'll have to get there and transfer the money. So nothing has changed. It's just that they are deferring these uh, transfers. For me, um, I, I would think that if they want to do the changes in the law, it's something that they have to look at quickly. Of course, currently they don't have a, a majority or in terms of how they're able to pass some of these laws in Parliament, it's going to be a bit problematic if they want to touch it now. So it might not be something that they have the uh, political will or power, because I even think some of their own uh, members of the uh, government might not support some of these uh, uh, amendments if they want to do it now. I mean, the Finance has a difficult task. I mean, considering all the promises they've made to the IMF and the things they promised to do, if you and a commitment which we've just been talking about, reduction of transfers to the statutory funds, we know even before this commitment, that place, that is an area of significant struggle for government. This Assembly Common Fund mm-hmm. has struggled. Capitation Grant has struggled. NHI uh, Fund has struggled. We've had Get Fund 
struggle. All those statutory funds have struggled. Now there's actually a commitment rating, rating I mean, with the IMF that is going to reduce. Mr. Evans, let me take it from the District Assembly's Common Fund angle and make, a, and, and, and make a point to you. You see, the Constitution says that in the creation of districts, municipal assemblies and metropolitan areas, they should be economically viable. Economically viable. Now, that same Constitution indicated that for a metropolitan assembly it should be more than 250,000 population. Part of the reasons for doing this is that there are some areas that are urbanized and can take others along. What did we see? We had 216 districts. We created 38 more when Akufado took over. Today, I mean, it's about 254 to 260 districts. And if you come to AMA, the former AMA has been split into how many more? Lots of them. This is my argument. I don't see why in this part of our world, in Accra here, AME, TME, Tema West, uh, Ayawasu West Wogon, and all those areas. In fact, we should have had Ayawasu West Wogon as part of um, you know, AME. But I don't see why they should be benefiting from uh, District Assembly's Common Fund. Let me share with you the pillars of fiscal decentralization. One, assignment of revenue. That's the first one. Then there's assignment of expenditure. Three, there's government transfers. And the fourth one is municipal bonds. Even assemblies can borrow, but they never borrow in this part of our world. They always would rely on government. I say a lot of these things. We're talking today about the collection of property rates. Yeah. Let the assemblies lead it. Take them off. A lot of them should not be part of the digital assemblies common fund. I don't even see why today government is collecting money and giving it to the assemblies. Uh, you know, Gideon is here. There's, there's, the world has evolved. We're talking about revenue-sharing systems, tax-sharing systems where the assemblies are leading it and collecting it and sharing it with they, the They've started uh, posting yeah. the, um, the property tax yeah, I mean, that's a property, notices. They, they're talking about other taxes, even some indirect taxes. They even expect the assemblies to be collecting them okay, on behalf of government, keep a percentage of it, send a percentage to government, then government will use those uh, you know, parts to develop less endowed areas. There are different ways of looking at things. But government all of a sudden wants to collect every money. And this is a country that's supposed to be practicing a decentralized system. I asked for the common fund bit. I, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, there are other issues that you, you, you must be concerned with. But I am, I am not concerned about transfers to the Youth Employment Agency, for instance, the Youth Employment Program, because we need to have a total overhaul and audit of the Youth Employment Scheme. Okay? The Youth Employment Scheme is another area that we must check, check and check and check again, and we realize that a lot of revenues of funds that are transferred to that particular sector may be ending up not achieving the targets that have been set for the agency, but maybe ending up helping other people's cause. So that one also, if you want to cut transfers to it, I don't have a problem. National Health Insurance Authority. Continue giving them everything that is supposed to be. After all, it's in the law. We have accepted. Even that one, you don't transfer them. No, yeah, the money's don't go. We don't, we don't transfer them. As for health, I am not going to say, but, but the, the, the major cuts... We've said this before, so I don't like to repeat things that we've said over the period. But the major cut is a reduction in the size of government. Yeah. That's the major cut. In fact, before we start talking about any cuts, it's good that uh, the president did not appoint another person to replace Isilia Dapa. But that's not all. The president should do a reshuffle and half his government, then we have a conversation. Yeah, I mean, and that definitely won't be in the media budget review. <laughs> oh, yes, but, uh, but, but, but going forward, after the finance minister is done, you, you, expect, you expect that. The, president is, 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 the part of the public wage bill, 
should also come from. Yeah. Because it costs us a lot to take care of a minister. One of the things we've never realized, even if you were... It's, it's a lot, yeah, the, the vehicles... And and sevens the, and all of yeah. that. A lot of money goes in. Yeah. And that would have saved a lot of money. Um, and as you can see on your screens now, the finance minister is seated. The majority leader is also present. The entire leadership of the majority side are all seated. And so we expect this to start any moment from now. The finance minister about to present the media budget review. This is one of those budget reviews that uh, there's a lot riding on that. The finance minister himself acknowledges that. is the reason why before he did this, he had met the entire parliament to brief them. Even the main budget itself, he didn't do that. But he has found reason to do this uh, on the back of the, of the presentation today. And so that tells you how important the media uh, budget review presentation is to the government. And maybe that also is a signal to some of the key things we are expecting to hear in this particular budget on the back of everything else they've agreed uh, with the IMF. But there's an essential bit that we haven't talked about that is a condition um, for a successful implementation of the, uh, of the program with the IMF, which is the achieving a successful restructuring of, of our debt, of our foreign debt, right? and agreeing with foreign creditors to restructure the debt significantly. We've done, according to the government, a successful domestic debt exchange program. That in itself is not complete because we know that there's a second round of that happening with the cocoa bills, et cetera, that needs to happen going forward. But a huge chunk of the debt is, is held by foreign creditors. We, we haven't reached an agreement yet. And if you read the program... Uh, highlights with the IMF, going forward, a successful implementation and, and, a, and a successful review in September will be hinged largely also on our ability to now present a, an agreement with our external creditors. That is, that's the significant bit of this. And I'm expecting an update in the media budget review where we are in our negotiations with external creditors to reach an agreement. Yeah, it's very much more so. I think we cannot say we've successfully restructured our debts until we get the external creditors uh, to agree. And from the understanding I had, I think with the Chinese getting in, previously the restructuring we've done was more with the uh, donor community international uh, agencies. But currently we, have, we do have a significant amount of our external creditors being held by private persons, pension funds, or pension fund in Minnesota, and so on and so forth. And those entities, uh, they are not going to take kindly to restructuring or taking haircuts. And so that's a very critical part. Until we've been able to uh, uh, settle that portion of it, we wouldn't say we've had a success. From the uh, stories you are getting or things you are hearing, the government has made significant advances towards that area. Um, also, let's not forget that there are other creditors that uh, we're not talking about. I mentioned the IPPs, for example. Yeah. It's quite significant. We yeah. cannot overlook that. That also has to be addressed. And I'm, it's, for me, I'm looking to hearing these two parts for the IPPs as well as for the external creditors. What actions have we taken to resolve in this? And I know the IPPs have made it clear that they are not going to take haircuts. They are willing to restructure deferred payments, structure it over a certain period of time. So they will not take a haircut, but how much are you going to pay them now? Sort of an agreement to be able to take government attacks. So 
for me, I want to hear what government has got to do with this too. Winston, this, this is a key, key bit. It, it, it is. Um, I was reading, I think I was reading something on Reuters on Bloomberg that, um, you know, we, we probably may be able to achieve uh, an external debt restructuring by next year. We may, we may not be able to achieve that in 2023. And I guess um, a major condition also for us, and it's part of the reason the ministry has been trying so hard to restructure pension funds, because some of these persons who invested in your bonds and everything also used pension funds. If you don't touch your local pension funds, what business do you have advising them to actually also, to, I mean, uh, urging them to you know, also restructure their pension funds? It's one of the reasons why today it's becoming very likely that pension funds will be restructured, okay? And, um, you know, the cocoa bills, we're told, I mean, it's been announced already uh, to be restructured. The... Um, you know, dollar-denominated local bonds also being restructured. You're right, the IPPs, but yes, but um, I mean, I'm sure the ministry would also take that. I mean, if you say, for instance, that um, you're okay, uh, you know, uh, extending the turnout payment, I not, I'd accept it and hope that I, I get a bit of space to come back and pay. I mean, it's been part of the discussions that have been going on that today you cannot get your money. And so, yes, you could get a bit of the money. Uh, let's extend it over a period and then we get to pay you. But with that also... Uh, be the acceptable means of restructuring it as another conversation. I'm sure along the line, some way, somehow. And also because, you see, when it comes to the IPPs, there are those who could actually have taken, uh, had more than they have today. There are those who have never, uh, you know, um, actually used their take or pay provisions. Evan. So for those yeah. persons, for instance, you don't go to them and say that, or oh, reduce your debt, because he's never taking advantage of the take or pay. He's always done a take and pay when he has a take or pay. I'm not going to mention it, but there are, you know, there are IPPs that have done that to government. And so your government cannot go to them and say, you know, take a cut and all of that. But I think it's even exciting to note that they are prepared to actually have an extension of the tenor. That's okay. I'm sure government can actually, you know, make uh, arrangements. ECG could make arrangements. ECG is doing a lot of uh, collection. You, you notice that they... Uh, how much the government owes the IPP, the debt, has increased now to $2 billion, $2 yeah, billion Of course, plus. it would increase. It would increase. On the back of, since the last time, so they were negotiated around a billion. Yeah. Now it's uh, over $2 billion. And the interesting thing about it is the uh, ECG admits that the last time they did this negotiation over a month where they had indicated they would shut down the, the plans, the negotiations did not actually touch the, the debt because that was ring-fenced. The ECG were instructed... It's, it's not part of your remit to negotiate. Leave that to the finance ministry. So the only thing they negotiated was how to remain current yeah. on, on subsequent bills that will, will be coming in. Now, the, the test of that is end of this month. The test of that, the first bill that will come in at the end of the, the, I mean, over the period will be either today or tomorrow. The IPPs will be submitting the bill, and the agreement was from the last negotiations the next bill that comes, you remain current with that. You pay immediately. Um, and the IPP bills that come monthly is significant. Yeah, but I mean, that's the point. I mean, so you have to be paying that. You have to pay. You have to be paying the current bills that come whilst you still pay the arrears. So Evans, how is government going to do that in this media buyer? ECG can pay. They will pay. ECG is indicated to us, pay your bills. And I mean, uh, they've, they're coming out with a lot of uh, things. And this is not the avenue for that conversation. They've told us how they've gotten a new meter readers and everything uh, from tomorrow. In fact, from tomorrow, ECG will start another uh, leg of their nationwide collection. This time when they come to your house, 
Uh, you can, you know, they read your meter. Everything would come out there. They'd give you bill. You pay. They should be able to pay because we are also paying. Those who are not paying right tariffs, uh, those who have, uh, you know, adjusted their systems are being arrested and they're being made to pay. So ECG should be able to raise... Well, we have been told that we're supposed to pay realistic tariffs now. It's a process, yeah, but we're paying realistic tariffs up, up until now. So they should pay, and they'll be able to pay. They should be able to pay. Well, I mean, many people will not be as confident as you in terms of their ability to pay. Uh, but, but back to the external uh, debt situation, which is key, $28 billion is what we are talking about. That's, that's a lot of money. Um, to try and deal with, because it's spread over China, the uh, multilaterals, the, there's a commercial bit of this, which is around $13 billion. Um, and the first time this first came up, I, I recall the suggestion was for commercial, for the commercial uh, creditors, we're looking at giving them a 30% haircut, um, which, is, which is quite steep, by the way. Will they accept that? There's a sense that they are more willing... It's, it probably would be easier to reach some, some, of, some form of agreement with them than even the domestic because they've made a lot of money over the period. What, we'll see how that plays out. China is at the table, so it helps. But as we've learned in the Zambia case, China being on the table doesn't solve all your problems. No. Because they actually, China got to the table, Zambia got the deal, and still have not managed to access the first tranche. The reason being, the negotiations have stalled over the period, although China is at the table. Um, and, and our ability to get the next tranche, again, is dependent on showing to the IMF that we have a credible agreement going for that is workable beyond the assurances that we receive that qualified us for the, for the deal. So whatever it is, this review that we're about to hear will give us a strong indication whether in September we get the next tranche or not. If you are using the external debt situation as a yastic, which, by the way, is a key one, we are, we are in for some, some rough time in the next one month or so before we hit, we, hit, we hit September. And I don't know where we are with the negotiations with external well, creditors. You know, the thing about the Zambian situation, and it presents learnings for all of us. So Zambia has actually uh, not been able to restructure their uh, you know, debts, uh, the external debts, at uh, between 1.25 to, I think, 2% or so per annum. Okay, they've restructured the interest payments and have said that, and they've deferred it after uh, they deferred it for I think for the next five or nine years. And they've said that now, after that, if the economy picks up, okay, the interest payments would increase. So they agree that based on the current economic conditions, this is what we have I, I mean, agreed with you. Okay, now if the economy is to improve, then we will pay you more. So for now. It's a guaranteed 1.25, okay, which we can pay annually. But if the economy improves, we'll probably take it up, I think, 4 or 5%. And I think the guys have accepted now. So Gambia has actually done with this external debt restructuring. And, this is what, and, and these are the learnings it presents okay. for others. I don't know what our okay. ours would be. And as you can see, the, uh, the Speaker of Parliament himself just took his seat you can see on the floor right now, Dr. Casey Lato-Foxing, who is the minority leader, uh, speaking and addressing the House just before the finance minister starts. I want to take you live now to Parliament, and let's listen in. ...needs to be corrected straight away. So, Speaker, I'm of the view that if the minister responsible for finance 
is varying even an expenditure line downwards, there is the need for Parliament to approve it. The Speaker, in this case, we know for a fact that the budget was prepared with an assumption that government was not going to increase wages and salaries. The Speaker, subsequently, government increased wages and salaries. That clearly means that the media review that the Minister is, is presenting today, there will be an increase in the compensation line. So, Speaker, he can't do it unilaterally. Parliament will need to give him the permission to spend that money. So that's why, Mr. Speaker, this should not be, uh, he should not come to us by a statement. He should come to us in a form of a motion in line with Section 28 of the PFM Act. So, Speaker, let them do the right thing. Come with Section 28 where a motion is required under these circumstances so that, Mr. Speaker, we can approve it. Mr. Speaker, let them not run away from Parliament approving or giving the mandate to spend. Mr. Speaker, he may be spending within the Appropriations Act, but as long as you are buying expenditure from one line to another, Mr. Speaker, I still maintain that Parliament will have to approve it, particularly on the compensation line. Mr. Speaker, another important point. We prepared a budget assuming, assuming that we were going to spend certain amount of money in servicing interest. Subsequently, our minister responsible for finance and the government has announced debt restructuring. To the extent that we are not servicing those debts, we have subsequently announced suspension of interest payment. So, Speaker, since then, we are not paying our interest. Why is it that he will not come in a form of a motion? For us to debate it properly, so, Speaker, I submit that this particular media review should come in a form of a motion and not a statement. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Let's, let's handle the first issue that the majority leader raised to vary the order of business and then go to item 7, which is at the commencement of public business. If we climb over that one, then we can go to the next one that he just raised. You have any issue with that? Any issue with first varying the order of business? The, the speaker, obviously we support it, because this is the most important thing that we okay. have to do. Recognizing that today is the last day we have to take the media review, 31st of June. Okay. So, honorable members, at the commencement of public business, Item 7, Presentation of Papers. Honorable Deputy Minister. Seven A, by the Majority Leader. It's already. Semi-annual report of the Bank of Ghana on the Ghana Petroleum Fund for the period January 1st to June 30th, 2022. Honorable members, the said semi-annual report of the Bank of Ghana is accordingly referred to the Committee of Finance for consideration and report to the House. 7B, are they ready? 7B. 
by the Minister for Finance, 7B Roman 1. Request for the reissue of parliamentary resolution approval letter in respect of the loan facility agreement between the government of the Republic of Ghana, represented by Ministry of Finance, and African Export Imports Bank for an amount of up to 750 million United States dollars, made up of tranche A, 200 million euros, and US 101 million and tranche B, 350 million euros to finance sorry, 350 US dollars to finance capital and growth related expenditure in the 2022 budget. members, before I refer it, Yes. Uh, speaker, this house, as you've guided it, is governed by our rules. When you see the item the clerk at table has just read, request for the reissue of parliamentary resolution. Reissue of parliamentary resolution. Parliament just doesn't reissue resolutions. If you want to rescind a decision that this House took, say so and do so in accordance with our rules. But to reissue a resolution, Parliament passed a loan agreement, and that agreement is being tweaked. If you want to tweak it, come properly. You cannot say reissue a resolution. Parliament does not just sit down to reissue resolutions. No, Mr. Speaker. So this is irregular. And I think that the leader of government business should set it aside, do further consultations. There was a loan agreement approved for a certain purpose. If you want to vary the intent and objective of the utilization of that loan agreement, then receive the original motion and resolution that was so passed by Parliament. But to say that you are referring this, Mr. Speaker, and that is why I rose, you want to refer to Finance Committee to reissue a resolution. Reissue one resolution. And an amount of 350 million US dollars to finance capital and growth related expenditure. And Mr. Speaker, let me go to our standing order. When you say a resolution, the resolution captures the purpose and intent of any loan agreement approved in accordance with Article 181 of the Constitution. So you cannot be reissuing a resolution. I think that this is very, very irregular, and I think that it's not consistent with the 1992 Constitution, Article 181, and more importantly, our standing orders. I don't see how Parliament can reissue a parliamentary resolution, approval letter. When we approve, Mr. Speaker, and you are conveying, the second line says approval letter. You are conveying the decision of this House. And that decision reflects what happened in this House. 
You cannot so motto decide that you are reissuing a resolution by a letter. I have a difficulty accepting the route that we want to pass this process to. I thank you, Mr. Speaker. Member, a letter was written to me on this matter because of the reasons you just adduced. I thought the proper thing is for it to be considered by the committee that reported on the matter. The committee will consider it, report back to the House, and it is the House that can raise the issues that you are raising for deliberation, and at the end of the day, is a decision of the House that will now be communicated back to the Ministry. So I agree with you, but the procedure, this is what we have to do. So I will refer the said request to the Committee of Finance for consideration and report to the House. Honourable Members, Item 7B, Roman 2. Request for waiver of import duty, import NHIL, import get fund levy, import VAT, ESM levy, and special import levy amounting to the Ghana City equivalent of 803. $2,662 on materials and equipment required to be imported for the construction of Ghana Armed Forces Training Infrastructure China Military Aid Gratis Project. Honorable members, the request for river is referred to the Committee on Finance for consideration and report to the House. Honourable Members, the Minority Leader has raised an issue which I think I should guide the House on. The Minority Leader has raised the issue that there is no item on our order paper stating that the Minister for Finance is scheduled to move a motion, a motion submit the media review of the budget statement and economic policy of the government of Ghana for the 2023 financial year. What we have is item six, which says statement. To buttress his point, he refers to the Public Financial Management Act 2016, Act 921, particularly Section 28. I have a copy of the Public Financial Management Act 2016, Act 921, and of your indulgence, I will read the said section 28. Honourable members, section 28.1 says the minister shall not later than the 31st of July of each financial year 
prepare and submit to Parliament a media fiscal policy review. 28.2. The media fiscal policy review shall include the following information. A. A brief overview of recent microeconomic developments of Ghana. B. An update of microeconomic forecast undertaken by government. C. An analysis of the total revenue, expenditure, and financing performance for a period up to the first six months of the financial year. D. A presentation of a revised budget outlook for the unexpired term of the financial year and the implication of the revised budget outlook for the medium-term fiscal and expenditure framework, if necessary. And E, where necessary, Roman 1, plans for submitting a proposed supplementary budget for approval by Parliament. And Roman 2, an overview of the implementation of the annual budget and of the budgets of covid entities, unquote. Honorable members, the third section does not mandate the minister to come to the House by a motion. It doesn't. That is left to Parliament to decide as to how the minister should come to us. It simply says the minister should prepare and submit to Parliament a media fiscal policy review. And so it's for us to decide how we want that to be done. But clearly looking at the import of the section, it refers to those submissions as information. Information. It is only if later the information given to us necessitates that he should submit a supplementary budget. That supplementary budget needs the approval of Parliament. But the media review is for the information of Parliament. That is the law that you have passed. And so it's not for him to move a motion. As so rule and I think that the proper thing is for the minister to submit the media review in the form of a statement as information to the House. I may now move back to private business and invite the Minister for Finance in accordance with item 6 of the order paper to present the statement on the media review of the budget for the fiscal year 2023. Minister, you may do so now.
Speaker, Honorable Members of Parliament, I stand before you on the authority of His Excellency President Nanado Dankwa Kufuado to present the mid-year fiscal policy review of the budget statement and economic policy of the Government of Ghana for the 2023 financial year. Today's presentation is in fulfillment of Section 28 of the Public Financial Management Act 2016, Act 921, and Regulation 24 of the Public Financial Management Regulation, LI 2378. I respectfully, Mr. Speaker, request that the entire 2023 media fiscal policy review document is captured. I presented the 2023 budget statement economic policy of the government in Kabum budget. At the time, the economy was going through a very difficult period amidst unprecedented global turbulence. This was within the context of major external shocks coupled with domestic vulnerabilities triggered by credit rating downgrades, tightened domestic financing conditions, and increased costs of borrowing with the cost of shipping a container increasing sevenfold in the 18 months following March 2020. Just about every country in the world grappled with soaring prices from 2021. Our country, like many others globally, experienced unusually sharp increases in food, fertilizer and fuel prices, rising inflation and exchange rate depreciation leading to severe economic challenges and hardships for our people. A headline in the December 2022 edition of The Economist captured the global situation in these words, quote, 2022 has been a year of brutal inflation. Mr. Speaker, it is no exaggeration to say we cannot find another period in our history where so many different headwinds hit our economy at the same time with unrelenting speed and scale. Thankfully, as the mem members are beginning to show, and as many honorable members of the House have indicated to me in our engagements, we have together as a nation turned the corner. Turned the corner, Mr. Speaker. We have avoided the unimaginable, but what could have been so easily possible under different leadership circumstances. With a lot of effort, 
We have managed to avoid empty shop shelves for medicines and other essentials. We have seen no shortage of food. We have been spared the frustrating specter of long queues for fuel at our filling stations. And we have managed, in spite of all the challenges, to keep the lights on. Indeed, as the psalmist said in Psalm 118.23, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This turn in the corner is underpinned by the investments and sacrifices we have collectively made during the difficult period since March 2020. Mr. Speaker, it is important that we acknowledge some of the major milestones that this country has experienced in the last three years. We should, could, be still and appreciate that despite our challenges as a country, we have been saved from many extreme conditions that others have suffered, including peace, health, security, continuous supply of power, and life itself indeed. Over the period, the country has gone through extremely difficult circumstances, and the gratitude of His Excellency the President and his government goes to the good people of Ghana for their patience, understanding, and positive contributions to government efforts to weather the storms. During the COVID-19 period, we indeed lost family members and friends. But it's also true that Ghana recorded some of the lowest cases of mortality and infections worldwide. This was due to the implementation of a swift and robust COVID-19 response program led by His Excellency the President. We recorded 171,653 COVID-19 cases and 1,000 462 unfortunate deaths, as against 10.8 million cases recorded and 228,738 deaths on the African continent alone, and 249 million recorded cases and 2 million deaths in Europe. May the souls of our friends and family faithfully departed rest in peace. We invested immensely in education to ensure that school years were not disrupted, and we did so because we knew the alternative would be significantly costlier to our society. That was why the President ensured that our children return to school earlier to write the examinations to enable us to build a requisite human capital for the future and for them not to lose a precious year. We ensured consistent power supply and kept the lights on to enable businesses and households function despite the increasing cost of legacy energy agreements. We continued paying salaries and wages of all public sector employees and kept everybody at work without laying off our workers and factored in a 30% increment of base pay for workers on single spine salary structure this year. We invested, Mr. Speaker, in the security of the nation and protected our citizens including the lives of the 1.1 million visitors who responded to our Beyond the Year of Return program, that's boosting tourism in the middle of the crisis. And we cleared up and strengthened the financial sector to promote entrepreneurship and private sector businesses, including agriculture, tourism, and hotels, manufacturing, etc. Mr. Speaker, 2022 was the most difficult year for me as Ghana's Finance Minister. On July 1st, 2022, we took what was then a difficult 
but necessary decision to request support from the IMF to implement our post-COVID-19 program of economic growth. The country was going through a dire period of economic uncertainties and despondency. Mr. Speaker, we have turned the corner, and more importantly, we are determined to continue down that path. Soon, we expect the measures taken resulting in economic activity greater than anything experienced in the history of the Fourth Republic. Our plans and programs should soon lead to a sustained increase in domestic production, including manufacturing and farming, replacing many of the products that we are used to importing. Mr. Speaker, when I presented the 2023 budget in November last year, I indicated that we will pursue major fiscal and monetary policy measures within the framework of the PCPEG. Our coordinated response to the macro fiscal challenge, which His Excellency the President charged us to develop in March 2022 before going to the IMF, that's the PCPEG. As a first step towards fulfilling this objective, Parliament passed the revenue and expenditure measures, as well as several other Honourable Minister, Minister, just a minute, the first Deputy Speaker to take the chair. Mr. Speaker, we have turned the corner and more importantly, we are determined to continue down that path. Mr. Speaker, when I presented the 2023 budget in November last year, I indicated that we will pursue major fiscal and monetary policy measures within the framework of the PCPEG. Our coordinated response to the macro fiscal challenges, which His Excellency the President charged us to develop in March 2022, before going to the IMF, that's the PCPEG. As a first step towards fulfilling this objective, Parliament passed the revenue and expenditure measures, as well as several other macro-critical economic policies we presented in the 2022 budget, and we are grateful for that. Along these lines, we also needed to create additional fiscal space. By I, negotiating an international monetary fund program, two, concluding a debt operations program, and three, attracting significant investments, especially green investments, for a vibrant growth strategy. Mr. Speaker, I can now report that we have been diligent and resolute in implementing these measures and successfully negotiated the three billion U.S. the three billion U.S. three-year IMF ECF program, which was approved on 17 May 2023, to support implementation of our PCPEG. Concluded on February 14, the initial part of the debt operations of which the domestic debt exchange program. Developed a framework for the V20 Climate Prosperity Plan to attract climate investments from the private sector and initiated the Mutual Prosperity Dialogue to crowd in domestic and extend our private investment to underpin our growth strategy. These achievements have been with the support and commitment of this August House and the Ghanaian people. It demonstrates that when we speak with one voice, 
we can achieve what we set our minds to do. Genesis 11.6, it was one people speaking the same language. We have begun to do this. Then nothing we plan to do will be impossible for us. Right Honorable Speaker, accordingly, His Excellency President Akufuado has asked that I convey his profound gratitude to this House for passing all the revenue bills as well as expenditure measures. Indeed, our sincere gratitude also goes to all investors, financial institutions, and bondholders for the sacrifice, support, and forbearance in this difficult period of our country's economic history. We appreciate your contribution towards turning the corner and commitment to partner us in transforming the economy. We must also extend appreciation to the IMF, the World Bank, and other development partners, as well as the G7 and G20 members who have stood so strongly with us. Mr. Speaker, for the first six months of the year, we continue making progress to exceed our non-oil revenue targets for the year. We have seen improvements in non-oil tax revenue collection despite some notable shortfalls in VAT. However, oil revenues are falling short of expectations due to changes in global prices. We will therefore undertake a downward review of the oil-related revenue as well as the corresponding expenditures to align with the underperformance of some of our revenue handles. Specifically, this will impact the annual budget funding amount. Mr. Speaker, in view of the reasons outlined above, as well as the lower domestic interest payment and amortization, following the completion of a part of the DDEP and the reduction in the foreign finance capex, the appropriation has been revised from Ghana CD's 227.7 billion, as presented and approved in November 2022, to 206.0 billion Ghana CDs. This is in line with Regulation 24, Sub-Regulation 3 of Public Financial Management Act Regulation 2019, LI2378. Mr. Speaker, we will therefore not require a supplementary budget. Mr. Speaker, government is, however, committed to pursuing a robust growth strategy within the limited fiscal space and our fiscal consolidation.